Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Will Eastham, and uh, I'm the pastoral intern here at Emmanuel Anglican. And this Sunday, we're going to be continuing our series, uh, God Wants Us Back, 10 Images of Hope from the book of Jeremiah. In his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor, um, describes the three horrific years that he suffered in Nazi concentration camps. Between uh, 1942 and 1945, uh, Viktor Frankl went through four different camps, including Auschwitz, and he saw the death of his father, his mother, his brother, and his pregnant wife. And looking back, uh, Frankl called the death camps a living laboratory, a testing ground, where he saw some become like swine and others become like saints. He writes, our generation is realistic, for we've come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he's also that being who entered those gas chambers upright with the Lord's Prayer or the Shema Israel on his lips. As a trained psychiatrist, Frankel wanted to know, what is it that allows some to come through suffering stronger, to reach the other side, not just uh, physically as survivors, but as saints? Ultimately, uh, it's really interesting, he found that it came down to two traits, radical honesty and radical hope. Radical honesty about the present and a radical hope for the future. He found that if there are people who are honest about the facts of their suffering, but they didn't have hope, their chances of survival were going to be significantly limited because they had no reason to live. On the other hand, he found that if they had what he calls a naive hope, a hope that's, that's optimistic but ultimately not rooted in reality, they became too easily discouraged when their expectations weren't met, which in the long run decreased their stamina to live, too. But what he calls spiritual survivors, spiritual survivors, they were those who had a hope for the future, but it was a hope that was honest. It was a hope that was honest about their situation, but ultimately was rooted in a deeper reality, a bigger and more meaningful story, one in which their present suffering was just one scene. This was the difference uh, that Frankel ultimately saw between those who behaved like swine and those who behaved like saints. I want to ask you this morning, do you feel naturally drawn one way or another? Do you feel naturally drawn one way or another this morning? Maybe you're feeling very radically honest about uh, how bad our situation is. Maybe you're feeling radically honest about the effect that uh, COVID and the aftermath is having on you, on your family, on your community, on your bank accounts. Uh, but you're also kind of feeling a little bit in despair about the future. You're having a hard time investing in your relationships in the present. You're having a hard time showing up mentally and investing in your vocation at work. Or maybe you're even having a hard time investing in church. It's just not what you would want it to be. It's not as it used to be. Or maybe, uh, on the other hand, you're, you're feeling pretty optimistic that all of this will blow over pretty soon, uh, but you, you don't really have a good reason why you think things are going to go back to normal soon, and you find yourself kind of you know, avoiding the news, uh, only seeking out fun Twitter, 
and uh, trying to have fun when you can and just block out all the difficult realities of, of this crisis and the effects that it's having on you internally. I want to know this morning, how do we become people who are both radically honest and radically hopeful? How do we become a people of radical honesty and radical hope? We can be really honest about the present. We can be really honest about what's going on inside of us and outside of us. And yet we also have a radical hope for the future. Where we can get through this crisis stronger, stronger in our faith, stronger in our family lives, stronger in our commitment to Christ, in our vocations, stronger to our mission as a church. Wherever you are this morning, the Lord wants to meet you. He wants to meet you and he wants to give you a word of radical hope, like the one that we see him giving to Jeremiah in our text. Like Israel and like Jeremiah, we need, we need a vision of God's true, good, and beautiful future, one that can free us to live as his saints in the present, even when the things around us might look bleak. Please uh, open with me to Jeremiah 32 in your Bibles or in your bulletins. Let's look together at Jeremiah's radical honesty, his radical hope, and God's radical redemption. Starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, at the time that the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but surely shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. So Baruch, uh, Jeremiah's uh, disciple and his biographer, he kind of sets the scene historically for us in his scriptural account. He writes in verse one that the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, at the time that the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. So if you remember um, back in Jeremiah 10, the Lord had told Jeremiah earlier that because of his people's sin, because of their spiritual apathy, their hardness of heart, because of their idolatry and their injustice, ultimately going so far as to sacrifice their own children to other gods, he was going to send them into exile for 70 years. So now uh, where we pick up in chapter 32, uh, it's summertime and Jerusalem is a war zone. Babylon uh, has, has surrounded the city. The city's totally on lockdown. It's besieged. And it's really only a matter of time uh, until Babylon totally destroys it and deports its people into foreign lands. And we know from the, from the war records uh, that Babylon started the invasion but then their army had to momentarily pull out and go uh, fight off the Egyptians. And so there was this sort of short amount of time, this limbo space where people could start to come out of their homes a little bit. They didn't have uh, as much fear for their lives. They could walk around with a little bit more freedom, but uh, they, they knew it was only a matter of time until the other shoe dropped. 
They knew that the next time that the Babylonian armies uh, came back, they wouldn't be leaving again until uh, their city was up in flames. So Israel, Israel's in crisis. And Jeremiah, where's Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah, he's in prison for prophesying that this exact thing would happen. Look at, look at verse 3. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord? Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. So Jeremiah, he relays this really difficult word from the Lord. He essentially says, look, I'm giving your city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he's going to capture it. King Zedekiah, your king, he's going to be taken from Judah. He's not going to escape. He's going to be sent to Babylon. And although you're going to fight against Babylon, you're not going to succeed. This is, uh, this is not a very optimistic message. You know, this is not a, an optimistic message, but it's one that's ultimately very honest. And it's very rooted in reality. It's rooted in the reality of God's word. That God said that this would happen. And it's going to happen. No matter how much Israel fights against it, they're not going to succeed. And we, we know from history that they, they didn't succeed. That the city was overthrown in 587 B.C., and Zedekiah was captured and he was taken into Babylon, just like Jeremiah prophesied. But rather than listening to this message, rather than listening to Jeremiah's word from the Lord, rather than internalizing it and responding to it in faith, responding to it with repentance, maybe even calling a, a national day of prayer and fasting and lamentation for their injustice, for their idolatry, tearing down their, their shrines to other gods, seeking the Lord and asking him that even if he's not going to stop the exile from happening, he would at least sustain Israel through it. King Zedekiah could have done all of these things, uh, but instead he chose to, to lock up the messenger, right? Because this was not the message that he wanted to hear. This is not uh, a message that's, if it's you know, announced publicly, it's going to be good for favorability ratings. It's uh, not a message uh, that would promote national optimism, Zedekiah, he would, he would much rather listen to the other prophets in the land, the ones that um, Tyler Patty talked about in his sermon a few weeks ago from Jeremiah 29. These prophets, they had a much more favorable message. Uh, their, their message was a bit more optimistic uh, than Jeremiah's message was, which is why it gained so much traction and popularity. Yet as, as hopeful as their word was, it was not a hope that was rooted in reality. It's what uh, Viktor Frankl would call, like we said before, a naive hope. It was not a word from the Lord. In the 20th century uh, convert to Christianity, Thomas Merton, said that there's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. There's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. We can't, we can't actually lead ourselves. We can't lead those around us. We can't lead our families and our friends in a healthy way. We can't lead them into flourishing if we're denying the hard parts of reality, if we're not actually in touch with what's real. Even when it's hard, even when it's not what we would want it to be. 
And every, every serious follower of Jesus, just like King Zedekiah running up against this, this difficult word from the Lord, every follower of Jesus will run up against what uh, Pastor Pete Scazzaro calls the wall. The wall is, is something that we don't want. Usually it comes uh, in the form of a crisis. And it's something that we can't control, something that we can't see the other side of. So it could come in the form of, of a divorce. It could come in the form of uh, a lifelong dream you've had that you start to pursue it and, it and it's shattered. Maybe it's a job loss. It could come from just a season of dryness of soul, of desolation of soul, not being able to see or feel God. Maybe a crisis of faith where the faith that you received as a child just no longer makes sense. It could come in the form of a deep and unfulfilled desire uh, to be married or to have children. It could come you know, in the form of a, a global pandemic and all that that brings with it. Whatever it, it might be, uh, when we hit the wall, our temptation is, is uh, not to face it directly, but to try and get around it, to try and climb over it. And, and if we can't do any of those things, uh, to then just sort of throw our hands up and to give up or to even go backwards. And although this is a really difficult time, a very painful time, this is actually a really vital time of growth and training in our life with Jesus. And it's, it's something that if we don't face the wall, if we resist it, it's actually just going to cause us uh, more pain and more confusion long term. You know, 70 years of exile, um, that was a wall that King Zedekiah and that most of Israel uh, couldn't see over and they didn't want to go through. They didn't choose it, and it was totally out of their control. There was nothing that they could do to stop it. So I want to know this morning, what's your wall? Where is it that you're feeling stuck? What's the, the thing in your life that you can't fix, that you can't control, that you can't see the other side of? Where are you maybe tempted to go backwards, or to even just check out this morning. Ultimately, something that we see all throughout Scripture is that God brings us to this wall as a way of bringing us closer to himself. God brings us to the wall to bring us closer to himself. So getting us to, to face reality, to be radically honest, to see the false hopes that we've bought into, to see the false gods that we've believed, to purge our hearts and enlarge our souls so that he can invest more of his presence and his power in us. It's only when we're radically honest about the present that we're actually tuned to hear the radical word of hope that the Lord wants to speak to us. So look with me at, at Jeremiah's radical hope that he received from the Lord in verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord. And he said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So the Lord tells Jeremiah while he's in prison, he says, hey, your cousin's going to come to you, and he's going to ask you to buy his, his, uh, 
his uh, dad's field, so Jeremiah's uncle, his field, at Anathoth, because the right of redemption uh, by purchase would have been his as the next of kin. And although, you know, all that language might sound kind of strange to us about the right of redemption, it was actually a, a pretty common practice uh, in Israel that went all the way back to Leviticus 25, where the Lord says that, you know, if your brother or one of your relatives possesses property and they fall into debt or poverty and uh, they're, they're going to need to sell it, the nearest family member should purchase it from them so that it can stay in the family and they can receive it back eventually. And if you were that, that nearest family member who uh, was called on to buy the land, then you would be called the kinsman redeemer. So this was actually a very normal family obligation, uh, like you know, going to a, a family barbecue or something, something that you know, uh, the Lord was asking Jeremiah to fulfill that wasn't actually that radical in and of itself. But it's when he's asking it. He's asking him to purchase a field in Jerusalem when Jerusalem's on the verge of being invaded and destroyed and all of its inhabitants are going to be taken into exile for 70 years. So you think about it, that's like someone who, who you know, walks up to the, the Kanchi Urge uh, desk and uh, asks to purchase a larger room on the Titanic while it's sinking. While the stringed quartet is out there playing, women and children are screaming, getting, take, getting taken in the lifeboats, and this person's like, you know what, can, can I actually have a larger room? It's like, it just doesn't seem like a smart investment. And yet, right after the Lord gives this, this very weird word to Jeremiah, his cousin shows up, and his cousin does exactly what God said he would. He says to him, buy my field that's at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And this is when Jeremiah knows that as ridiculous as this sounds, this must be of the Lord. So Jeremiah says in verse nine, I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. So he does it, he buys the field. You know, and we, we're not really told in the text uh, what his cousin Hanamel's motivations were in asking this. Uh, we don't even know why he asked Jeremiah and maybe not a closer family member. My guess would be it's probably because no other family member in their right mind uh, would make such a purchase. But uh, in giving Hanamel the best of intentions, maybe we can just assume that, that he had an incredible faith in the Lord's word. That he wasn't trying to cheat Jeremiah but that he just had this incredible faith in the Lord's word. He was steeped in the Torah. He knew Deuteronomy 30, where God said through Moses that there would come a point when Israel was so evil that he would send them into exile, but that after they repented and after they sought his face again, he would bring them back to the land and he would restore them. Regardless of, of you know, whether this was Hanamel's uh, intention or not, he comes to Jeremiah and he he makes this radical ask. And it is really a radical ask, considering the bleak circumstances. But in this radical act of hope and obedience, Jeremiah does it. Look at verse 10. He says, I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. 
Do you notice uh, that Hanamel and Jeremiah, they do this whole transaction in plain sight. Did you notice that, that language? Jeremiah says, I got witnesses in the presence of witnesses, in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence. You know, and this isn't um, Jeremiah virtue signaling, like, hey, everyone, look at what a great relative I am for being this kinsman redeemer. That's, that's not at all what he's doing. And I don't think it's also just because the transaction legally needed witnesses. Now, I think that what's happening here is that Jeremiah and Hanamel, they're actually the witnesses. They're the witnesses. They're, they're witnessing to where their ultimate hope lies because their investment is, is ultimately it's a statement. It's a testimony about the fact that they, they believe in the Lord. They believe that the Lord is going to restore them to the land like he said that he would. Look at verse 15, where this is expressed clearly. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So Jeremiah, he's, he's radically honest about what the Lord's doing in the present. But he's also radically hopeful about what God has said that he's going to do in the future. Jeremiah's hope is with God on the other side of the wall, even though he can't see it himself. And even though he doesn't even fully understand it, why the Lord's asking him to do this, he's still obedient. He still fulfills this uh, simple, basic family obligation to his uncle. And he trusts that the Lord's going to somehow use it. He's going to use it, and he's going to fulfill what he promised to do. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. What I love is that, that in the process of this ordinary act of obedience, Jeremiah has, has this extraordinary symbol of hope that he's able to give to those around him. It's not this papier-mâché, naive hope like Zedekiah and the false prophets, but it's a rooted and it's a resilient God-given hope that Israel can bank on, one that they can actually invest in, a promise that can get them and their children through these 70 years of exile, which would no doubt be hard. And you know, what I think is so incredible about this is that when we're in crisis mode, um, you know, when we've hit the wall and we're just kind of over it, you know, we're, we're over having to wear face masks in public, we're over not being able to go out and eat at our favorite restaurants, we're over not being able to just hug and embrace our loved ones and our friends without any fear when we see them. When we're, when we're worn out, when we've hit the wall, it doesn't actually take uh, radical hope to do radical things, if you think about it. We do the radical things just out of necessity. We do them just, you know, even in pure adrenaline. It doesn't really take radical hope uh, to get out of bed and go to your job when you're feeling worn out and you're feeling tired. But the hardest things, the things that actually does seem like it takes radical hope to do, they're actually the normal, ordinary demands of human life, right? It's like the humdrum obligations, the spiritual disciplines, those like little acts of service that you technically don't have to do. Have you noticed that? That like these are the things that tend to fall by the wayside uh, the quickest. Responding to texts and emails, reaching out to just check in on your family and friends. It could be those extra investments of time uh, with your kids or in your marriage. It could be just, you know, going out of the way to serve somebody else, uh, maybe doing the dishes or cleaning up uh, around the house with your roommates when you really don't have to. Spending regular time with the Lord, 
and just staying invested in church, even though it's not the same as it used to be, even though it's not what we would want it to be. We'd rather be in person. You know, and I think as I was reflecting on the, the text this morning, I think that maybe radical hope looks in this season just like continuing uh, to invest in and fulfill those ordinary obligations. Just continuing to invest in and fulfill those, those ordinary commitments that we made to God and to other people pre-COVID, before we hit our wall, you know, or whatever it may be. When we, we're not doing them uh, because there's a, an ingrained uh, a reward or anything like that. We're, we're not doing it because it feels good or because it makes sense, but we're just doing it out of love. We're doing it out of love and we're doing it out of obedience to God. Even if we don't know what the future will hold and honestly, even if we don't feel like keeping him. So I want to ask, what's the field that the Lord might be asking you to invest in this morning? What field might God be asking you to invest in this morning? You know, at the beginning of this series, Father Aaron, uh, he called us to return to those, those old promises, those old life verses, those callings that God bestowed on us to dust them off and to just bring them before God again in prayer, uh, waiting and, and watching over them until he brings them to fruition. And I know for me, pre-COVID, uh, something that, that the Lord kept bringing up in my time of prayer and uh, just through words from several, several different unrelated people uh, was uh, just entering into a season of really prioritizing God's presence. And there was that image of Mary of Bethany just sitting at Jesus' feet, her heart, op- her heart open, uh, just receiving from him and being with him. And I sensed God drawing me into more, more silence and solitude. And I started to integrate that more into my life. But, um, you know, when COVID hit and life got busier, my attention got more fragmented. And uh, those extra times of prayer, it was just so easy for those to, to fall by the wayside. And then when Father Aaron put out that call, it was like, oh yeah, this is a field that the Lord's calling me to invest in. Maybe there's, maybe there's a promise that you feel like the Lord gave you or a word of scripture that someone spoke over you when you were young, kind of like that deed that Jeremiah sealed up and put into the ground for another generation who'd be returning to the land. Maybe there's just ways pre-COVID or pre-hitting your wall in which you felt like the Lord was drawing you closer into deeper relationship with himself, into deeper relationship with his church. And for one reason or another, you know, those, those promises got buried and those commitments just fell by the wayside. I think radical hope might look like dusting off those promises, reinvesting in those commitments and obligations, those spiritual disciplines, reestablishing your relationship with God's word and even with God's church. Maybe just continuing to invest more of your time or your energy, your money, your attention in things that are related to God's kingdom and to God's mission, even if it doesn't look the way you would want it to right now, or even though things aren't the same. God knows that we can't live without hope. And he wants to give us hope. He wants to give us a resilient and a rooted hope. So look with me at at God's promise of radical redemption that he gives to his people in verse 36. Now, therefore... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, 
and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Did you notice how many times God declares, I will, in these verses? Verse 37, I will gather them from the countries to which I drove them. I will bring them back. I will make them dwell in safety. Verse 38, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Verse 41, I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. It's the Lord who's doing all of these things. He's doing them all for Israel. And it's like he's emphatically proclaiming, just like I said that I was going to send you into exile, and I'm sending you into exile now. I'm telling you also that I'm going to bring you back from exile, and I'm going to restore you. And there's nothing that you can do to stop me. Nothing that Babylon can do to stop me. Nothing that Persia can do to stop me. I will do this. Look at verse 41. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. We read about this homecoming back into the land uh, in the book of of Ezra. Just like God sent them into exile, he, he really did bring them back from exile and he restored them to their land. And we see that uh, God keeps his, his promises, but there's, there's some promises in here, some pretty radical promises, some pretty radical I wills uh, that the Lord promises to Israel besides returning to the land. Or it's interesting, it doesn't just say, I will bring them back. But he says, I will give them one heart and one way. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. I will not turn from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The hope of redemption that the Lord promises Israel. It's not just a redemption and a return from physical exile. but The Lord actually wants to redeem them and to bring them back from their spiritual exile too. It's salvation for their spiritual exile. It doesn't just say, I'm going to plant you in the land, which would have been you know, an excellent promise, something that they needed to hear. But he also says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to plant a new soul in you. I'm going to plant a love and a trust for me, a fear for me that's so deep that you're never going to turn from me ever again and worship other gods. You're never going to seek out those self-destructive behaviors ever again. As New Testament believers, we see that in Jesus, all of God's I wills have been fulfilled. All of God's I wills have been fulfilled in Jesus. Just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all of God's promises find their yes in him. He's our ultimate kinsman redeemer. The Lord Jesus He wasn't naive. He saw us honestly. He saw us in all of our brokenness. He saw us in all of our weakness, all of our sin. And yet he invested everything in us. He came and became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. He became a part of the human family. On the cross, he didn't hold anything back, but he offered his own blood, his own life, to pay the penalty for our sins, to redeem us of our spiritual exile. And we're told Uh, From 1 Peter, he has this beautiful image that through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, 
where we've actually been reborn with him and in him into a new and into a living hope, one that can't be taken from us. It's not a, a sentimental or a naive hope, but it's a wide-eyed living hope, hope that can redeem our past, hope that can secure our future, and a hope that's able to come and strengthen us to live sacrificially in the present. Can you imagine, can you imagine being brought to a place where all of your hope in life and death is grounded in Jesus? Can you imagine like what beautiful art you would be inspired to make? What, what good deeds would you be finally free to invest in? Who would you be liberated to love and share the gospel with? Are there fields that the Lord's asking you to purchase that you'd finally feel free to invest in? What despair or what self-destructive behavior or temptations would you actually be able to say no to? Because deep down in the very core of your being, you trust that God isn't trying to hold anything good back from you. If you're stuck at the wall this morning, if you're thinking about giving up or about going back, Jesus wants to meet you. The living and risen, resurrected Jesus. He wants to meet you. He wants to give you a word of radical hope from the other side. A word that can strengthen you, a word that can encourage you to invest in whatever field he's calling you to purchase. Let me pray for you now. Gracious God, Pray, Lord, that uh, wherever we find ourselves this morning, whatever side of the wall we might find ourselves on, we pray that you would just let us know that you're there with us. Let us know, Lord, uh, that you want to strengthen us, that um, the hope that you give us in Jesus isn't a naive, it isn't a sentimental hope. It is actually a rooted and resilient hope. Pray, Lord, that if there's anyone who has been feeling called by you to purchase and invest in some kind of field, anyone, Lord, who's maybe was feeling drawn to closer intimacy with you and with your church, or anyone, Lord, who who was feeling called to to start serving in a, in a certain way, and they found it just really hard to do that since since COVID's come, I pray, Lord, that you would meet them and that you would strengthen them with your own presence with the promise that uh, there is another side to the wall and that you want to bring the other side to them and strengthen them with your word of hope this morning. We ask that you would make us a people of radical hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.